Welcome to the Nonprofit Newsfeed, nonprofitnewsfeed.com, bringing you the best news from the best sector, news from a nonprofit perspective and what matters. This show brought to you by Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thanks for joining us. This week on the Nonprofit Newsfeed, brought to you by Whole Whale, we have some headlines coming from interesting articles about the USAID food program as it's putting farmers against professionals in the field of philanthropy, wealthy donors potentially pulling back from New York City's problems, and some big issues over at Schmidt Ventures, the philanthropic arm of of the former, well, of the former, yeah, Google CEO. So Nick, let's jump into it. Yeah, thanks, George. Happy Tuesday. Our first story is as reported by NPR. Large international development organizations such as Catholic Relief Services are sounding the alarm on adjustments they think are needed to how the United States delivers food aid. So in this investigative report by NPR, they highlight a shocking 2022 incident in which Catholic Relief Services open up shipping containers to find grain destined for Haiti rotting and and pretty much unusable by the population. And this brings into focus a complicated problem in how the United States delivers food aid as part of its international development programs, essentially non-emergency food aid and non-emergency commodities delivered by USAID must be provided by United States suppliers. Uh, Most importantly, that means that emergency food, um, such as emergency grain, must be delivered and produced by American farmers. Um, This has been a longstanding kind of tradition in how the United States delivers food aid. Um, However, the international development community um, correctly highlights that that is not an efficient or useful way to deliver such aid. Oftentimes, the food aid, such as grain, is not nutritious for communities, um, particularly impacting communities like Haiti, in which the aid delivered is rotten because it's had to travel far distances or otherwise not, you know, uh, adequately reversing the effects of malnutrition. Additionally, um, international development professionals have found that more regional implementation of food assistance is often more efficient, um, as well as providing things like direct cash vouchers um, can help people access food um, in a much more sustainable way than really um, bringing in food aid. And this has teed up quite the showdown between the international development community that is going tired of these real stringent restrictions on the type of food aid that USAID delivers versus the farmers. And that's coming to a head in the farm bill. The Biden administration is pushing for reforms um, to make food assistance less restrictive. Already, 60% of food aid the U.S. supplies is market-based, so it is that more efficient kind of localized provision, but that can only be delivered in emergency settings. In non-emergency settings, USAID is still required by law to provide from American growers. So we're seeing these dynamics play out in the Biden administration versus the farmers in the farm bill attempting to kind of rein in a longstanding legal tradition in the United States of how it provides food assistance. George, this is a complicated story, but I think it's a really, really important one. USAID is one of the largest international development organizations on the planet, doling out 
billions and billions of dollars in assistance every year and can genuinely shape the economies of developing countries, um, how food assistance gets handled in emergencies, international development writ large. USAID is one of the most important players. So I think it's really important to kind of center this. We wanted to highlight this at the top of the podcast as something that may not get a ton of attention in the United States, but has really dramatic and important impacts in the global South and other places where the U.S. is delivering food assistance. I think there's a huge line between emergency response and the sort of food for peace programs, meaning food delivered on an ongoing basis in non-emergency times and the market-based pathways. Really, I have a hard time finding any reason not to push harder for that. The idea that 310 metric tons of basically commodities grown in the U.S. slowly shipped because of bizarre shipping policies that make sure that like every, every special interest group got a hand in this charity then showed up literally infested, unusable, is, you know, I think a, a perfect point to show how ridiculous this is. What's more, when you don't use market-based pathways, you currently, like listening right now, you, you've got a job, right? You produce some commodity for people, some purposeful good. Now imagine suddenly there was an outside force, let's say you were you know, selling pencils to keep it simple, you were selling pencils, and all of a sudden the benevolent US delivers 1 billion pencils to your folks. But they don't just like offer it into the end. They just drop it off on your front porch and say, go handle this because you needed pencils. And then, by the way, the next year comes along and they, they don't deliver pencils because the program changed. You have lost all of your infrastructure for building those pencils, for distributing those pencils, because they were suddenly dropped on you and destroyed your local ability to produce and distribute those assets. That's not aid. I mean, that's disruption. And if you're not using market-based pathways to find solutions in here, just call it what it is. That's just a farm subsidy. And that farm bill is coming up. And it's very clear that farmers are interested in like branding this. And like, I'm very pro-farmer. I love it. I'm like, I'm here for it. Like in my literal family, there are farmers, but I'm sorry to conflate philanthropy with a farming subsidy is not helping things. So the like American Farmers Feed the World Act sounds like very positive, but I think it's important to parse out what the net effects of this type of initiative actually means when it shows up with 310 metric tons of unusable produce that even if it was usable literally disrupts the local ability to produce and distribute your own your own self-sufficiency. Come on, it, it's 2024. What are we doing? Yeah, George, I think that's exactly right. And to highlight the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Development needs to be sustainable. Uh, dumping, you know, millions <laughs> of tons of, of grain is not a sustainable way to increase food access and food stability. And I think that, as you say, we need to modernize how we're delivering aid, working in development. And I think this has been very I wouldn't use, so I, I wouldn't use the word modernize. Like, I feel like all manner of sin is hidden under that narrative. Localize. Localize. Absolutely. That's the, that's the thing. Like... Absolutely. Like, it's and, not modern, ironically. It's like, oh, what a surprise. You mean like it's more efficient if we don't have to shove shit in the ship that then goes bad, but actually instead locally invest in the fact that they maybe need nitrogen for their soil rather than a whole bunch of rotten corn. Yeah, no, George, to your point, Catholic Relief Services kind of pioneered this model of integral human development, which is looking yeah. at 
sustainable development in a very holistic way, right? Economies and politics and local cultures and dynamics are all inextricably linked. And to ignore any of those pillars of what makes a person's life, you know, valuable, sustainable, and happy, you needs to be adopted holistically. So absolutely agree. And it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, especially in an election year. I know everyone's talking about Iowa today. So I listen to a lot of podcasts with farmers, but we shall see. Yeah, expect the angry comments on YouTube. I, I get it. It's fine. The farmers, they're coming for us. Um, pitchforks. <laughs> Our next story is from the New York Times, and this is an interesting one. It's about wealthy donors pulling back from New York City's escalating problems. So New York's philanthropic elite are hitting the brakes on donations aimed at the city's mounting issues. New York City's facing issues around the migrant crisis, an influx of migrants, homelessness, extremely high living costs, a housing crisis. And Mayor Eric Adams called for financial aid to help budget gaps affecting public services has had the effect of essentially doubting the efficacy of donors' contributions. In some ways, Eric Adams <laughs> repeatedly screaming about the problems are, are too significant without federal help de-incentivizes donors is essentially the thesis of this article. Listen, New York City is facing major challenges. Eric Adams himself has a historically low mayoral approval rating uh, with all sorts of just kind of weird, bizarre little scandals. And New York City thrives because of philanthropic and nonprofit organizations. George, you and I are both New Yorkers. Nonprofits are woven into the fabric of how the city works. They are absolutely essential. They provide vital services and have been doing so for hundreds of years. Even back to think of when all those millions of migrants came over at the turn of the 20th century. It was social service and nonprofit charitable organizations. And many of those are still around today, providing exactly the same type of critical care to New Yorkers. And it's really a shame to see donors kind of pulling back, maybe considering placing dollars elsewhere. I don't know, George, what do you think about this? I think you mapped out this problem pretty clearly. One narrative, though, that is important, and it's important for every nonprofit dealing with intractable problems, is they point out this like no hopeful messaging. And in here, there's a there's a quote from Grace Bonilla from the United Way of New York, and they say there's no hopeful message here that people want to invest in. It's hard. It's a hard conversation to have with donors when your mayor is saying not only do we not have good solutions for a problem that should be solved by the federal government, and I agree with that, but we're also cutting the budget. And so, you know, they're they're talking that you know, the issues of, you know, increasing migrant activity influx into the city could cost New York City over 12 billion over the coming years. It is, in some ways, the mayor is right. At, at a certain point, maybe this isn't, you know, supposed to fall upon the, the goodwill of million billion dollar philanthropists in the city. Like that is called a Band-Aid. And if you have a gaping wound, that is not the solution. And you're kind of caught in between needing to push the urgency of this issue. And I actually like, <laughs> I think Eric Adams is right here. <laughs> but in the meantime, you're not getting the traditional support that you have in the past because you're not saying like, there's a way forward. All we need to do is build a bridge. What I would say is like, you know, is that, you know, metaphor of whatever you want to call it a bridge or until we can get there, we need to deal with here. There are ways of posing that, but you realize like, 
the messaging, the communications actually has pretty profound impacts on, on people's behavior in, in terms of giving. So, you know, as you frame the problems and solutions, you know, you have to have the, you know, success, the view of this can be made better by your participation. Otherwise you don't get participation and you're still left with the problems of today. Yeah, George, I think that that's a great, a great call out that messaging matters. And I think New Yorkers are compassionate. You know, there was a there was a story last week in which migrants were essentially put up in a school, a, a local public school, in like an emergency housing situation, and there was all this you know right wing outrage about it. And then they interview some of the students, and they're like, "Listen, we were virtual for." two years, we're happy to house migrants in a gymnasium in the dead of winter for one night. You know, like there's a ton of compassion in New York City, um, but the problems are real also. And I think that we need to be solution oriented. And even though <laughs> there are really significant problems, we can't be doomsday all the time. All right, I can take us into our next one. This one comes from Forbes, and it's about Schmidt Futures, which is, quote, according to Forbes, a $1 billion philanthropic mess. And so in September, Eric Schmidt, who's the billionaire and former CEO of Google, was scheduled to discuss his company's involvement in a new partnership to funnel corporate aid to humanitarian disasters during a UN Security Council meeting. Corporations in the UN, what could go wrong? The initiative had been in works for almost a year, and support from Schmidt Futures, which was his philanthropic organization with an annual budget of, quote, around $4,400 million, was crucial to its success. However, by September, the company's CEO had departed. Several programs, including a partnership with the White House, were being sunset. George, what's going on here? I, I, I put this in the mix, like not... Not to throw stones at, you know, a foundation that traditionally was trying to do, you know, proper philanthropic support, but just when you're at the whim of a single billionaire, it, it is at the whim of a single billionaire. And when thoughts and opinions change, suddenly, like, there's a massive shift. And all of the nonprofits, all of, in this case, you know, international conversations about initiatives just get dropped because there is, you know, potentially a new shiny philanthropic object to, to look at like AI or whatever is next down the road. So I point this out because, you know, as much good as, you know, billionaires do in our philanthropic landscape, they can also, when they change their minds, cause a whole host of, of problems and instability. And it's just holding up the mirror and saying, this is a silly industry we all work in. And just acknowledge that when you are dependent on this, that it is and should be listed in your risks, <laughs> that we are, you know, dependent on the, the opinions of the billionaires in control of these philan philanthropic initiatives. Yeah. No. And, and also the like whole Silicon Valley can figure this out. Like, okay, sure. You can create the, the most profitable company in all of history, but try running a philanthropy. So I always kind of like inside say like <laughs> the people that work in the social impact sector deal with the hardest problems this universe has to offer. Case in point, I give you a Google CEO trying his best at this. Yeah, no, I think that's true. Also, it's kind of fascinating that the UN kind of got attracted to the shiny object in the room. But like, come on, guys, 
who who has never signed a, a human rights treaty? Businesses and corporations, you know, like the, the UN system, they're, 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 they tend to get a little distracted by the shiny object in the room, even though, awesome. of course, tons of amazing professionals in there. I think, yeah, a little bit more, I don't know, hesitation is might be what I would advise if I were advising. We need a feel-good story, and this is a feel-good one. George, I don't know if you love television, but last night was the Emmys, and GLAAD got the Governor's Award for LGBTQ plus advocacy. So they got the prestigious award for their, quote, unwavering advocacy in the LGBTQ plus community. This comes amidst challenging times for trans rights, and the Academy's accolades shine light on the power of media representation and GLAD's pivotal role in uplifting LGBTQ plus voices. So shout out to GLAD. you love to see it. And yeah. We, we love to see the celebration of advocacy, and it's an awesome stage to see an awesome organization get the recognition that they deserve. Yeah, and they were clear when they were accepting and also in the narrative that many screenwriters consult with GLAAD when trying to accurately represent LGBTQ and trans issues in in shows and television, and it's very powerful, right? That is how social sentiment gets shaped, formed. And it's great to see Glad get recognized, but more importantly, be a part of the process. And that's just one example of the power of nonprofits in, in narrative. All right, Nick, I do. I have a joke for you because it's Tuesday. But question, though, why, why doesn't Santa have the money to be giving gifts in, in January? Oh, gosh, I, I don't know. I think you'll like this one. He's... Nicholas? <laughs> this works oh, on man, all levels. Doesn't have that's, any nickels left because you know there's all there. Your name is Nick Nicholas. Like is I Nicholas. think it there's so many layers. I'm giving myself a strong A minus for this one. Nicholas. George, that's I give you an A plus. That that made my day. That's great. That's what I'm here for. Nick, I'll see you out there. Thanks for the help. Thanks, George. This has been the Nonprofit News Feed Summary of the Week. Thanks for joining us. As always, you can find resources at nonprofitnewsfeed.com. And don't forget to sign up for our weekly email summaries of the best news from the best sector.